1: Everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. Thanks for tuning in this week, and in this episode, we have a special treat for you. We're going to be breaking down Part 3 of our Forgotten West Memphis 3 series from Oxygen, and a big player in Part 3 who delivered probably the most interesting 12 minutes of true crime television I've ever seen is retired FBI profiler Jim Clementi, And I've got Jim right here on the line with me, ready to help me break down part three right after a short break.
0: Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator.
1: They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the Supercop really operates.
2: And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special.
1: From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I have Mr. Jim Clementi on the line with me today. And Jim, thanks for taking a break from your, your quarantine to, to help me break down this episode.
2: Hey, Bob, thanks for having me. And it was quite an honor working with you on the Forgotten West Memphis 3, especially because it's focusing on the victims and victimology and actually starting an investigation where it should have started
1: to begin with. And, you know, and those are all things that I learned from you. You know, r- real briefly, a couple episodes ago, I kind of gave the backstory of how we ended up on this project together about how I started with John and we went through Warner Brothers and then we kind of reup things and and I was actually standing in the Mercedes-Benz Superdome in New Orleans when I called you and asked you if you wanted to be a part of the project. You remember you remember me calling you about that?
2: I do. I didn't know that you were standing there. But yes, I remember it very well and I absolutely jumped on because one, I love your work ethic, and two, this has been a case that has bothered me since I first heard about it. And I was actually I met Damien Eckel. At a screening of West of Memphis at a famous author's house in Los Angeles. And at that time, I was very taken by how they were manipulated into this Alford plea, but also how they were not able to get any justice from the justice system that screwed them. And I suggested that they reach out to the DOJ to file a 1983 action against law enforcement in West Memphis, Arkansas, because their rights were actually violated under the color of state law. And that is something that I still think they have an action for. But, of course, the Alfred plea actually creates a barrier to that.
1: Right, because they technically pled guilty.
2: Yes, they technically pled guilty, but still maintain their innocence. And it's such a bizarre aspect of the law, but it's something that tells you that the prosecution must have known that they could not have convicted these guys. And that's the only reason they would offer such a plea.
1: Right. You know, and it that, that plea has been argued on both sides for so many years, and it, it, it drives me crazy. The big thing that I hear people say is, well, if they were innocent, why would they take the plea when they had a hearing, an evidentiary hearing coming up in December? And it's like, I don't know if people are just willfully ignorant or they don't understand. Number one, that it's you know less than one percent of post-conviction cases actually result in an overturned conviction. So there's no guarantee, even with overwhelming evidence, that they were going to get a new trial. And number two, even if they did, that's still years. I mean, years in prison. Yeah. We saw it with non Syed where. You know, I attended his post-conviction hearing in February of 2016. A year and a half goes by before we get a ruling. Then the state appeals it. The first appeal, the the they were unsuccessful. They appeal it again. Ultimately, three years later, after this conviction was overturned, it gets reinstated, and he's right back at the whole process again.
2: Right. It's a very, very difficult process. And when you brought up the subject, I was going to say, I've got two words for you, Adnan Syed because that's a perfect example of how it typically goes. And it's, the system is set up, and probably rightfully so, that if there is a conviction, that it's very difficult to overturn it, because otherwise the courts, every single conviction would be mired in this exact same situation. If there's only a way that we could actually determine and prove who are the people who are actually innocent and give them these kinds of remedies and not all of the other people who are actually guilty, who are trying to get out anyway.
1: Right. And of course, that's an impossible thing to legislate to determine who's who. But, you know, while we're on the topic of Damien, uh, one of the elements of this part, it started in part two and it spilled over into part three, was me reaching out to all three of the convicted, the West Memphis three. To ask for their permission to test the DNA, to use the new MVAC method for DNA testing. And all three agreed to it. We got to see on screen the reaction of Damien and Jason. But one thing that I mentioned in last week's episode did you catch Jason's reaction, the look on his face, when I said this new testing method can pull 200 times more DNA off of the evidence?
2: Looked like pure joy to me.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: That's something. That a guilty person would ever consider it was—it was pure. It was—it uh, was an instantaneous reaction, and it, it's not something you can really fake. There are so many facial muscles involved in that kind of reaction, and I don't believe that. And I, this is nothing against him, but I don't believe he would be able to, in such a quick manner, fake that as quickly and as genuinely as. We saw it with our own
1: eyes. Right. And it's funny, you know, you and I hadn't talked about this, but I knew, as soon as I saw it, I knew if there's anybody else that caught what I just caught in that millisecond, it would have been you. And I didn't catch it really in the moment when I was watching it this weekend or or last weekend is when I, I was like, holy cow, look at his reaction. He is elated that this new testing method is out there.
2: And even when you just asked me now, I mean, we hadn't talked about this. You know, I hadn't focused on that one moment. I saw it instantly when you asked me because it was such a poignant thing. And behavior is what I focus on. And there's a lot of behavior in this entire series that I didn't get to see until I actually finally watched all the episodes together. That, to me, in those two nights, that, to me, showed me the sort of transition from A to Z with a lot of these witnesses And other people that you talk to. So I'm really, I'm really excited about talking to you about this. I was really just blown away by how comprehensive you were. I know that you've been working this case for a very long time. And, and again, as I said earlier, it's an honor to work it with you and to be a part of pulling this all together and letting the world know what really is out there, not the bullshit that unfortunately, the original investigation relied on.
1: Right. And that was a big part of it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of backtracking. You know, we were just going to talk about part three, but to jump back to part two, you know, one, one of the new people we heard from was George Taylor, the potential fourth boy. And in our discussions, you asked me, what did I think about? What was my read on his behavior and whether or not he was he was telling me the truth? Now you got to actually see it. And, and I was w- wondering what you thought about the, just from the bits you got to see on the, on the series, about the veracity of, of George Taylor and, and his story of being with the boys.
2: Well, again, and it's only limited chunks, obviously, that we see on screen. Uh, I'm not there sitting in the room with him like you were. But I will say this: in the beginning when he was actually trying to deny that he was the person that said he was the fourth guy, The fourth boy on that day. He was obviously very nervous. His behavior was very, you know, he was trying to oversell his position. And then when he started telling you, when you actually confronted him with his post and he started telling you about what he remembered, he was certainly trying to plead. In other words, I think it was important to him. And a lot of people, unfortunately, when you put him in front of a camera, are very concerned about that camera and very concerned about their image and how they portray themselves to the world. And so I think there was a lot of sort of distraction in, in what he was saying, and he may have tried to please by giving more details than he actually had. And I do agree with your assessment that he was probably pulling from other information sources rather than his memory from that day, Uh, especially about the color of his shorts and, and, and exactly what happened. However, I do believe that because his description and because of his relationship with the boys and because of the description by the woman who almost hit one of the boys, I do believe there's a very high likelihood that he was actually involved in that incident. What we don't know, of course, is how much information does he have really in his brain in terms of what time it happened and where the boys went when they when they left him
1: right you know he was you know my assessment on the and my recap from last week which hasn't aired yet when we're talking right now was was pretty much the same that he he seemed to me that he was trying to please and that he was drawing off of information that you know he's he's talked about this case for years i think it it, it makes it difficult because i like you i think they're probably is some amount of truth in what he was saying. But unfortunately, he's added so many other details to it, you know, like the pipe. You know, he he tells me that it was very specific. The pipe was plastic and it was like green and white. Well, so then we go to the crime scene and he sees the pipe. Well, of course, that pipe wasn't there back in 93. But what it told me is he had been to the crime scene recently. And because just recently the water had been so high, the actual pipe was underwater. You couldn't see it. And I think he saw that pipe, which was a green pipe that had been faded white by the sun in parts and thought, oh, that must be it. And that's why he described the pipe. So one thing I was sure of was that he wasn't drawing on memories from 1993. He was drawing on information that he had tried to learn very recently.
2: Yeah, well, it's possible. And, you know, people have different motivations to lie, not necessarily to, you know hide that they're they were involved in a crime but they have other motivations as well and that's why we always say once you determine that someone is exhibiting aspects behavioral aspects of deception you then have a responsibility to drill down and find out what they're lying about and why they're lying about it as opposed to just assuming that because they lied that they committed the crime you're you're investigating so i think you did that and you a lot of cross-corroborating and refuting, and I think that in the end, you have a pretty good idea of what went down on that fateful day. But when we get to talking about the profile, there's some really important stuff that, that we kind of glossed over in the in the actual show that I'd like to really dive down into
1: as well. Yeah, me too. So let, let, let's real quick go through. There's There's two other elements, obviously. You know, in this episode is when I'm trying to track down Jesse. I found him, and he agreed to the testing, and Damien did as well. But two other kind of key elements to this: the first was I brought in false confession expert Jim Trainum to you know. And a big part of this was a lot of these. There's been experts that have looked at these things before, but there always been either defense experts or prosecution experts. You know, so what I wanted to do was bring in independent people like yourself and Jim Trainum. To look at Jesse Miss Kelly's confession. Now, in my opinion, I'd already done a deep analysis of this interview uh, during our season five coverage of the case. I was certain that it was a false confession, but I wanted to see what an expert thought. And Jim kind of came to the same conclusion. So, wh- what did you think about Jim's analysis of of the Miss Kelly confession?
2: I agree with it completely. I think that, especially when he was pointing out how they were clearly not just telegraphing to him, but telling him that he was wrong, that he said something at you know, other times. They didn't record the entirety of the conversations that they had with him, or they had conversations in between different recordings. And when you see how willing Ms. Kelly is to change, to please them, to satisfy what they're looking for, Clearly, he believes that if he does that, then he will either not be in trouble or be able to get to go home or be able to just stop this questioning from happening. And all those things are typical situations in which somebody is coerced, cajoled, tricked into a false confession. What these officers had a responsibility to do was to then drill down, ask all the details that the killers would know. And... Every single detail that he gave that was inconsistent should have been turned over as Brady material to the defense. Every single time he said something that was inconsistent with what they ultimately got him to say, that's Brady material. And by law, that has to be turned over to the defense. And in fact, it never should have gotten to the point of defense because there was so much inconsistency he clearly had no idea what actually happened to those boys he clearly had no idea who did what to whom because he was nowhere near the crime
1: exactly and you know some of that brady material you know they clearly lied about conversations that happened you know for example you know and, and Jim Trainum cited it in our in our interview that made the final cut of the show was between recording 1 and recording 2 they say they, D- Detective Gitchell says they didn't speak with Jesse at all between those tapes. But then you turn the tape back on and he's like, oh, well, you told me earlier it was seven or eight. And the, he's literally referencing on tape the things they discussed off tape and then said that they didn't speak off tape.
2: And look, I've, I've worked a number of false conviction cases, false confession cases, and in Almost every single one of them, there was that same kind of behavior by the law enforcement officers involved, that where they spent hours with the defendant, who was a suspect at the time, not recording and then turning the recording on when they, quote, get the confession. And both of those situations, you know, not recording part of it and recording the confession part or skipping in between, both of those types of situations are fraught with the opportunity to take advantage of somebody, especially somebody with a low IQ. And we saw it in Brendan Dassey recordings. We heard him say to his mother, she asks him in the prison, she asked him, well, why did you tell them all those things? And he said, I don't know. And she said, well, where'd you come up with all that stuff? And he said, I guess, just like I do with my homework. Right. And that was the most, you know, it was the most clear example. On tape, they had it that he clearly had nothing to do with this, but he was guessing to try to please them. What officers have to understand is when you're dealing with somebody, especially somebody young, especially somebody young with a low IQ, they do not understand the situation they're in they do not understand the consequences of what they're saying they don't understand that when you read them they're right that they can actually not speak and not get in trouble for not speaking and that they actually have a right to have somebody else there but they also don't understand that if they say something just to appease the person that's questioning them that it actually has long-term and even life and death ramifications they simply don't have the mental capacity to understand that in the moment. They just want the questioning to stop. In Brendan Dassey's case, he just wanted to go back to school or get out of there. And in the case of Ms. Kelly, he was told he would go home, everything would be all right, and that's all he wanted. So he told them what they wanted to hear. Step into the world of power, loyalty,
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: You know, and one thing that I do want to point out before we move past the confessions is your look at, at these interrogation techniques and false confessions People should understand the perspective that your background is obviously they know in law enforcement. But prior to that, you were a prosecutor, not a defense attorney. You were a prosecutor. So you've been on you've worked your entire career on the law enforcement side of the justice system.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And just to go a step further, I actually taught interview and interrogation at the FBI Academy as an FBI profiler. I was teaching not only new FBI agents, but seasoned detectives from across this country and around this world. This was one of my specialties. This is something that has to be incredibly well trained if you're going to do it properly, because the person you're talking to is not just a generic number or something. The person you're talking to has an intelligence level, they have emotions, they have psychological issues at times. All these things have to be taken into account if you're going to actually interrogate them and then get what we want, which is accurate and reliable information. And so this is something that I believe the detectives, in this case, had inadequate training in, and I don't think that they did this because they wanted to catch the wrong guy. I think they did this out of an emotional reaction to a very horrific triple homicide of three boys in a small town where this kind of stuff never happens. In fact, there is no other town in this country where this kind of stuff happens, because this is an anomaly. This case stands out, and and that particular victimology is what drives the profile in this case. And I can't wait to get to talk to you about that.
1: All right, so we got one more thing to get to before that, and that was uh, very quickly we explored. You know, Part of the concept in part three was we needed, while we were waiting on, at that point, we thought we were going to get testing done any time. So while we were waiting on that, we thought, well, we should run down these other theories, one theory being that the West Memphis Three did it. That's why we brought Jim Trainum in, because the only evidence against them really was the confession. Then the other theory was the Mr. Bojangles theory. And we did something kind of cool. And it was actually our showrunner, Dominie Hoffman's idea to get a hold of Jeff, the former special forces guy, to actually walk that route and see what it would look like if someone moved from the crime scene all the way out to Bo- the Bojangles restaurant as, a, as an escape from the crime scene. So we saw that, you know, he, he was able to do it and we saw what that looked like. It made for some cool TV and, and we came to some conclusions. But regarding the with, with with from your take on it, regarding the Bojangles theory that you know the, our killer flees the scene, takes the bayou for a mile, and then pops out at at the Bojangles restaurant behaviorally speaking, does that theory make any sense to you?
2: Well, let's first talk about Mr. Bojangles, the guy himself. He was described as um, African American uh, covered in mud and blood. Now, the English language is very broad and and subject to interpretation. Were these people using those terms euphemistically or was he literally covered in mud and blood? I doubt he was literally covered in mud and blood, but if he was, it could have been because he was crawling through that swampy area. Who knows? However, that kind of person, the kind of person who was so disheveled and disorganized, who would walk into a public place, who clearly was in the ladies room not the men's room who obviously was doing things that would bring his presence to the forefront the police were called because of his behavior this is not somebody who is smart enough or mentally capable enough to avoid detection of this crime look at what happened to these kids these three boys were Non-traditionally hogtied, they were tied up each left wrist to left ankle, right wrist to right ankle. They were tied in a very practical way that could not prevent them from running away. These were not ligatures that were put on to restrain them while they were still alive. These were ligatures that were put on to keep their limbs in a smaller package so they wouldn't be sticking out in two feet of water. These were a practical thing. This took time. The fact is we have seen in the behavioral analysis unit, the FBI, we have seen tens of thousands of cases of murder where the body was temporarily or permanently concealed. Almost universally, that is because there is a known connection between the victim and the offender. Why would an unknown offender who was just wandering through these parts, kill these kids and then spend time with their bodies right next to their neighborhood. When people are out looking for them at this very time, why would he spend more time? This wasn't done in five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes or even a half hour. It took a significant amount of time to corral these kids' bodies, to secrete them in the water to find their clothes to stick sticks down to keep the clothes into the wo- into the mud at the bottom so that not only was there no trace of the bodies but no trace of their clothing or anything else they had with them and then to cross over that bridge go on the far side and take their bicycle and throw it in the water why would somebody take the time to do that because the somebody who did it, knew that those bicycles indication that these boys are over here and he wanted to delay the discovery so he could establish an alibi. Did Mr. Bojangles establish an alibi? No. He actually stood out and made people call the police. That's not an alibi. But somebody else who would be then going, changing, washing up, making sure that nobody knew that he was involved in any kind of activity around water or these woods, that's the kind of person who actually committed these crimes. And the ultimate part of that is that that person had a known relationship to one or more of these boys, and that's the reason why they spent so much time concealing the crimes they committed.
1: And with that, you have led us right into... The profile that you've been itching to get to. I saw. I saw how you snuck that in there.
2: Ah, well, you know, <laughs> it's my thing. I'm sorry. Right. But I think what we have to. I hope your listeners and the viewers of this of the Forgotten West Memphis Three understand that I have never heard in my entire career, and none of my colleagues had before, of three eight year old boys being murdered in the same incident either before this case or after this case. And that's why I said no small town was prepared. No town at all was prepared for this because it simply has never happened before or since.
1: Well, in conversations that we've had, you mentioned before that, in your opinion, this wasn't a triple homicide. Can you explain that?
2: Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. It's such an anomaly that I have to find out why. Why did it happen here if it's never happened before or since? And it struck me as we were discussing the case that actually what it was was somebody had a known relationship to one of these boys, and that kid was the target of the rage of the killer, and the other two boys were inadvertent witnesses, and they were killed because of that so we have to look at you know which boy took the most severe physical punishment which boy looks like they were the target of this and which other boys actually were just collateral damage
1: you know on that topic it it's getting a little way away from the profile but you know with all this time on my hands lately i've been thinking a lot about the evidence and the crime scene and the profile and my theory you know one thing that's that's been noted is that chris byers and stevie branch were found in the water right next to each other and michael moore's body is 27 feet away uh and michael moore is also the one with the head injury michael moore is also the one with the he's the other ones you know, the the bindings uh around their wrists and ankles Stevie and Christopher, there's no hemorrhaging around those bindings. They were obviously put on post mortem. Whereas Michael Moore, there was slightly some hemorrhaging, which I've heard could be could be that it was shortly after death, or maybe even while he still had a bit of a heartbeat. But what occurred to me, people, you know, and I've always thought too, you know, well maybe whatever happened with Stevie or or Christopher and Michael Moore tried to run away. But thinking about what you had said. And the evidence, I almost wonder if what didn't happen is Michael Moore gets cracked on the head and Stevie and Christopher obviously are scared and are backing away from that. And then the fact that they're drowned without any of these skull fractures or anything, that if then are unsub because those two witnessed Michael Moore getting hit on the head, maybe knocked unconscious then our unsub grabs Stevie and Christopher and just holds them under the water and drowns them. And that's why we don't see the other traumatic injuries on them. Does that make any sense to you?
2: It makes a lot of sense to me. If one of them was incapacitated and the offender had enough authority over the other two to keep them still, enough for him to get to them and then hold them under the water, just literally grab them by shoulders or an arm and stick them under the water. There's a lot of physical behavior going on here, and so that's why I profiled that it was a male. And the fact is that there are a number of indications that there's one focal point of this. So tell me, who are the known relationships to Michael Moore?
1: Michael Moore, the the known relationships we have are obviously his father, who was alibied, who was out of the state. Uh, he did know Mark Byers, who was across the street, but he's also, you know, his time is accounted for. He has an alibi. You know, we have Cub Scout leaders that were never uh, looked into or interviewed. I don't know. There's there's not many, you know, maybe other parents, but that, that's the, those are the only ones I know personally. And and that's what's always kind of, well, I guess it hasn't thrown me off. It's throwing me off now because for some reason, and maybe it's a, it's a, it seems subtle, but I think you and I both know it's not. There's a, the difference. For some reason, until just today, I had always assumed that Michael Moore was further away because he was the last to get killed and he had run away. But the more I thought about it, I think that I, to me, it makes more sense that it happened the other way around, that he was actually the first one to get cracked or, you
2: know. Yeah, but let's set up a situation though. What if all three of them were ordered to sit down, kneel down, whatever? What, what if that happened? And is Michael Moore. Is he the wisest of the group? Is he the most bold of the group? Is he the one that might have mouthed off to the person? Or if he saw that offender doing something bad or being extremely violent or physical with one of the other guys, would he stand up for them? That kind of victimology information might account for it. So the other two could have been controlled verbally but he wasn't controlled verbally and so he may have taken off and whoever did this might have chased after him and hit him over the head with a stick or slammed him into a tree and that's how he got the head injury and once he did that once he was unconscious the other two i would assume were very scared by this guy scared enough to stay in place scared enough to not run away because there was a direct, authoritative relationship over at least one of them.
0: Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW, Revoid. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: You know, and, and that's something that I think is overlooked by you know, there's, there's obviously a crowd out there that thinks the West Memphis Three are guilty and I don't want to even really argue with, with them. But they overlook the fact that once one of those kids is attacked, if this is a stranger or someone young, like a teenager, to me, the other two are out of there. Absolutely. The fact that they stuck around after one of them's assault, or one of them is assaulted, the fact that they were able to be controlled verbally, as you said, indicates to me not only that known person relationship, but a familial relationship because this person knows, this kid. these kids know, even if I run away, at least one of them, even if I run away, at some point, I still have to go home and face the music with this guy.
2: But wait a minute. But wait a minute. It's not just one of them. They have to know that all the parents know each other. Right. All the families know each other. And that if this is an authority figure of one family, he has access to the authority figures of the other family. So. They didn't run away because they knew that there was a reckoning to be had. And that's what controlled them. You said something a minute ago that, that really sparked something though. Um, oh, and let's go back to the West Memphis three who were arrested, the people who were convicted in this crime. You can't commit this crime in somebody else's neighborhood in, you know, what started out as daylight. And you at all. There's absolutely no forensic evidence that ties any of these three to this crime scene. And at least two of them have fairly rock solid alibis for this whole time. Right?
1: Right. Really, all three of them have pretty good alibis.
2: Yeah, I know. and But I think, wasn't Damien on the phone or something? And, you know, like that is... That was the phone records. That that's what did it. Was his alibi?
1: Well, that's what's that's what's touted as his alibi. But when you dig into the case file, and we get into it pretty in depth in another episode, but him and his whole family had went over to some friend's house that that evening, and and that trip happened between six thirty and seven o'clock at night. Was stamped by the start of the TV show Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero. It was verified by nine people, including the family members of a West Memphis cop. So. It's a lot more solid than than people on the Internet like to think that it is.
2: Great. Okay, so then all three of them had solid alibis. It's absurd to think that, that they could have, these three unrelated people, could have gotten to this location without any witnesses at all. We do know that dozens of people saw the three victims. How did three offenders get to that same location and egress from it After having spent a significant amount of time actually committing the crime and then trying to conceal not only the bodies, but the evidence as well, the clothing as well. How did they do that without leaving any trace of themselves and without ever, ever a single person ever even intimating that they saw them even in the area? How did that happen? They're not ghosts, but there are people were seen in the area there are people who ha- who will admit that they were in the area there are people who have the relationship that this behavior screams out about and those are the people we needed to look at
1: right and you know that that ghost aspect of this the fact that uh, you know how does someone not see the person coming in and out i mean the biggest problem was police never talked to anyone in the Mayfair apartment building that was facing the bayou to begin with, the, the pipe bridge. But besides that, that's one of the things that leads me to believe that our unsub was also one of the searchers, because the, you know it starts to blend together. This is someone who's out looking for the boy. Oh, yeah, I saw him, but he must have been looking.
2: Yeah, well, look, the fact is that the crime scene was interpreted by the police officers as a very gruesome, Ritualistic murder of three boys. They weren't thinking about turtles. They weren't thinking about animal predation. They didn't do the studies that we did at the behavioral analysis unit and at the body farm. Those studies tell us a tremendous amount about what happens when you put a human body in the element where there are natural predators. We now know that there was nothing satanic about this. There was nothing Sexual about this crime, there was much more likely a punishment, retribution, anger element to this crime. And so because of this, it focuses our attention on someone who would have anger at one or more of these boys, who just comes upon a child in a small patch of wood and is is outrageously angered to the point where they kill not only one but three boys it takes a tremendous amount of anger and rage to do that if you're not related if there's no history if there's no build up to this point but if these kids were doing something that they were told not to do if these kids were you know out there doing smoking, or skinny dipping when they're not supposed to, or planning on staying out all night and, quote, running away for the night, if they were doing those kinds of things, then they knew they were doing something wrong. And so if an authority figure, they, one or more of them were beholden to, caught them doing those things, then they may very well have literally complied with every single order that person gave them. I mean, they're eight years old. They're, what, in third grade? Yeah. I mean, you know, are they looking at dirty pictures? Are they, you know, using bad words? Whatever it is, it could be something so simple that they knew that they were doing something wrong and therefore they felt they deserved punishment, especially if punishment and corporal punishment was part of their path.
1: Right. And, you know, we we know for a fact that two of them were doing something wrong. Stevie Branch was told to go home by 4.30, and he didn't, He or he wasn't home. He had left. He was out past when he was supposed to be. And Chris Byers was told to clean under his carport until Dad got home because they were going to go to dinner, and he took off. So two of them, even if they're not, you know, smoking or cussing or skinny dipping or anything like that. That that already right there, there are those two there are two things they already know that they're doing wrong.
2: Right. So if I can go through the parts of the profile that didn't make it on there, I definitely believe that the offender is male and at least in his thirties. We talked about that, at least in his thirties, we talked about that on the show. But I believe it was a personal cause homicide. Somebody who justifies what they did, for some outside reason. It wasn't sexually motivated, and it was certainly not a satanic ritual that caused all of the injuries on these boys. Most of them were post-mortem. Most of them were animal predation. There were some on the scalp that, as your medical examiner told you, look like they are not natural, that they are from a, an ed- not a non-edged, Blunt force trauma. And so that is much more likely somebody who is, has their head slammed against some fixed object or has a blunt force instrument applied to their skull. So I believe that's why he had more injuries because he was probably the one who would take off, probably the one who would talk back, probably the one who was least controlled by the person who came. To render that punishment or judgment against them. So I think that's why he's further away from the other boys. I believe the offender would be known to the victims, especially because that person was able to control three people, and also that person spent significant amounts of time concealing these bodies. I believe that person would be prone to outbursts of rage, punishment would be very important to that person, and the punishment outweighs the infraction. As I said in the show, I believe that when people panic in the process of committing a crime that they've never committed before, they revert back to things they know. And so I believe that whoever did this possibly had work as a butcher or uh, hunted big game and used ligatures like that to control the game or to tie up me as a butcher. I believe the person would be staunch and inflexible and judging people would be something that he did all of the time. He would be a controlling personality, somebody who had to have things done exactly the way he wanted them done, and he would be very aggressive in doing so. He's the kind of person who might have panicked when this first happened, but he recovers quickly. Um, not a very emotional person. Somebody who, who basically, most people would think that he's not a monster. They might think he's stern and strict and rigid, but they wouldn't think he's a monster. And I don't believe the person who did this is a monster. He's a human being who lost control of his temper. He was felt he was justified in doing. Whatever punishment he was engaging in, and then it went too far, and he had to either incapacitate it and thought he killed the first one, and then he had to cover it up by killing the other two. So, uh, about the monster thing, he's actually the opposite of what we think of as a monster. He is one of us. He's somebody from the neighborhood. He's somebody who knows this area very well. He knows who comes and goes from this area. He knows how to get out of there and how to get in there. How to accomplish what he had to accomplish which is keeping them concealed long enough for him to establish an alibi i believe he might also like many offenders once he did get them concealed once he did get away and start establishing an alibi he might have somebody else try to discover the bodies with him so that he could be shocked and have a witness upon discovery and also the other thing about the tie to the community the reason why this offender was able to get away with this crime is because he had a reason to belong there. He, he belongs to that neighborhood, and therefore he is not seen as, as an anomaly. Mr. Bojangles, if people saw him in that neighborhood, if people saw this guy, it would have raised an alarm. But the actual offender didn't raise any alarm. And that's why he's got away with it to date.
1: It's interesting what you said about you know this guy not being a monster, and I understand what you mean that he's this is someone who is, would blend in with with everyone else. He's he's one of one of us. But I one thing that I keep going back to is if what happened is what you believe happened, and I agree with you that this was the this was punishment on one kid, and then the other two were murdered to cover it up. I just can't. I guess it depends on what your version of a monster is. To me, that tells me that this guy values his life over the lives of innocent eight year old kids. That it was, in order to preserve his own, he felt justified in not an impulse, but in just cold bloodedly murdering two eight year olds in order to protect his own skin.
2: There's no question about that. But, Bob, what I'm trying to say is. When you call people a monster or a predator, what ends up happening is people look right past the actual offenders who are smiling in their faces. These are people just like you and me. There's no outward appearance. There's no stamp across the forehead. I'm a killer. Right. And this is why serial killers get away with multiple crimes. They're living in our communities, but people expect that, that they would know. That someone was so quote, monstrous. What I'm trying to do is get people to throw away that moniker because what that moniker does is makes them, makes the real offenders invisible in plain sight. So I'm trying to get people to understand. Don't look for a monster. Look for a man, a human being, a person known to these kids who did a monstrous act, who In order to get away with what he had started to do, killed two more innocent kids. All three of them were innocent. He killed two more innocent kids. That's what I'm trying to do, is not let people get distracted by a term like monster when the person who did it was a regular man. That's who they should be looking for, not a devil worshiper like they thought Damien Eccles was or his two friends. You're looking for somebody who had reason to be there, who had a relationship with these kids, who was an authority figure to control them, and who had violence and anger and punishment issues. I have to say, Bob, that drowning is typically a female methodology. But in this case, there was so much physicality required, and then the shoving of the sticks in and the three different victims, it may be that the drowning, the water, was actually a vehicle for punishment, not just concealment. So, because I think this crime was motivated by punishment, not by sex, not by insanity, but by punishment, I believe that Water can be seen as almost a cleansing or a baptism or a punishment by holding underwater. And that could be what was happening to one or two of these kids when the third kid ran off. And because of that, that kid was further away. And that kid was dealt a near-fatal blow or more, one or more near-fatal blows to incapacitate him and then was put under the water. So I really believe that these kids, as they're described, were fun and playful and mischievous and they didn't always listen to all the rules and they were punished pretty severely and they knew that they were doing something wrong and that's why they were so controlled. It was literally their sense of right and wrong that ended up being their downfall because they actually listened to whoever it was that ended up killing them. They did not all just disperse. They did not all run away. As soon as they saw this person, this person was able to get close and control all three of them because they knew him, looked up to him, and were afraid of him from an authoritative point of view, not from a stranger point of view stranger point of view would have dispersed them. The authoritative point of view kept them together.
1: All right, well, that was awesome being joined by Jim and actually letting him explain what he went through in his thought process of his profile. Hopefully you guys all enjoyed that. And now next week, we're going to be moving on to part four. And part four is where things really start to heat up. We start looking at suspects, And it's also where you start to see my level of, we'll call it rage building over the fact that the district attorney, Scott Ellington, is not returning my phone calls about testing the evidence. We've got a call to action at the end of the TV show, and we'll have a call to action for you at the end of the episode. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is attributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineering by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInAsong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I'd like to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month. And we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, through the Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.